Welcome, everybody, to episode 12 of Generation Jihad. That's right, we're up to the Dirty Dozen. Um, I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here with my colleague, Bill Roggio. Bill? Hi, everyone. We're senior fellows at the Foundation for Defensive Democracies, and we've been running FDD's Long War Journal for over a decade now, which probably a lot of you know. Um, and we, of course, are covering a lot of stories on a week-in, week-out basis. And occasionally, we're going to use this podcast, or perhaps more than occasionally, use this podcast to give you a news update on different matters that are going on around the world. And this week, we're going to talk about several issues that are in the news. Uh, the first, we're going to lead off with Afghanistan. Bill and I will tell you that we keep trying to not have to talk about Afghanistan, but it keeps pulling us back in. Uh, and this week, uh, there was some press reporting that President Trump wants to get out earlier than the withdrawal deal with the Taliban stipulates. And he also, uh, once again, railed against the war effort on Twitter. So we'll talk about some of his comments. Uh, we're also going to talk about ISIS and how it continues to fight on. Uh, it's a, still a global network. It's fighting in multiple countries with its center of gravity in Iraq and Syria. We'll go over some statistics on that, some of the new uh, ISIS leaders that have been identified that the U.S. and the U.S.-led coalition are hunting. And we're also going to get into this new speech by an ISIS spokesman known as Abu Hamza al-Qureshi. He came out with another blistering sort of, uh, you know, us-against-the-world uh, diatribe, and we'll get into that. But we'll lead off with Afghanistan uh, once again because we can't get away from it. Um, and, Bill, you know, this week there was some press reporting saying, of course, that President Trump, you know, wants perhaps uh, a complete drawdown by uh, the election day 2020, and he certainly wants a quicker drawdown than has been um, stipulated in the withdrawal agreement between the Taliban and the U.S. And he took to Twitter and he called it, he basically said that, you know, look, look, the U.S. military is acting like a police force in Afghanistan, and we can always come back if we want to. I wonder if you had any thoughts on the, the former. I mean, we, you and I have been hearing now since 2018 that President Trump's patience has run out and he just wants out. Of course, as commander-in-chief, he can just order a complete withdrawal at any time. But it sort of it definitely seems to be sort of anxious to show a quicker pace of withdrawal at a minimum before the election day 2020. Yeah, Tom, in Afghanistan, so to, you know, to quote Al Pacino, and I believe it was Godfather 3. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled me back in. And that is us with not wanting to talk to Afghanistan, but it constantly bubbles to the news. Um, look, you know, he, he said to the press the other day, I'm going to, this is a direct quote. We're there 19 years. And yeah, I think that's enough. We can always go back if we want to. Well, guess what? That deal stipulates that, that this bad withdrawal deal that the U S signed with the Taliban, that once the U S is out, it can't go back in. And yeah, well, you know, let's focus on the specific language there, Bill, because you and I have talked about this. I haven't seen any press reporting on this. Have you seen any press reporting on this clause in the deal? I haven't no, seen any. No, it's, it's amazing. It's, 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 there has been no, well, look, the press reporting on this deal has been horrible to begin with. They call it a peace deal when we all know it's a withdrawal deal. Uh, the, the Trump administration caved in on every item that was insisted on by the Obama administration. Whatever we could say about the Obama administration's handling of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, at least they didn't cave on that one. Um, so, yeah. By the way, the I, just two, two quick exceptions on the press reporting. There was a, a good report, I think, in the New York Times, Mashim Mashal, had a good report that the Taliban has basically had to compromise very little to achieve their central aim in the war, which is to get the U.S. out. Very uh, uh, compromise very little on its ideology, and also compromise uh, very little when it comes to Al Qaeda. That basically, you know, he called them. He called out the deal for what it is. Sure. That it basically the, the Taliban refused to call Al Qaeda a terrorist outfit, and you know, basically has given us these vague counterterrorism assurances. But and Kim Dozier, I think, has yeah. done some good reporting too. She she accurately reported beforehand that. Um, the Taliban wasn't going to renounce al-Qaeda, where some press outlets are reporting their renunciation was coming or would come or will come. You know, you know there's some reporters who are trying to parse that language. Um, but, of course, no such renunciation has come. But let's focus on, so basically the deal trades the Taliban's counterterrorism assurances, which we've eviscerated numerous times. We're not going to do all that again here, although we're going to come back to it because we can't let go. Um, if it basically trades the Taliban's supposed counterterrorism assurances for the U.S. withdrawal and some other concessions on uh, made to the Taliban. Now, look, the passage that Bill and I are talking about here, we pulled up the, the agreement is on the State Department's website. Bill, here's what the actual language says. Now, if we if the U.S. if the U.S. 
stands by this agreement and stands by this language, then that basically means we really are trusting the Taliban forevermore to neutralize counterterrorism threats coming out of Afghanistan, which is absurd. But here's the language. It says, the United States and its allies will refrain from the threat or the use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of Afghanistan or intervening in its domestic affairs. That's part one, section F of the withdrawal agreement that was signed on February 29th. That agree- that language is basically a hands-off language, right, Bill? Yeah, it's uh, it's we've handcuffed ourselves. We're saying we'll trust the Taliban to give us counterterrorism assurances. It won't denounce Al Qaeda. It's not going to denounce Al Qaeda. Yet we we are going to accept the Taliban as an effective counterterrorism partner. The Taliban is making the same assurances it made prior to 9/11 that it won't allow its territory to be used for terror attacks. That's what they said in numerous times prior to 9-11. Then 9-11 happens and they refuse to give over Osama bin Laden. And yet we're going to trust them now and there's no reason to... Why would we trust them now when they refuse to denounce Al-Qaeda? So yeah, I mean, to be back to the point on the, the language of that deal, it doesn't read any clearer um, to me than that. It's, it's hands off of Afghanistan, the United States. That's what we have agreed to um, with a group that refuses to denounce Al-Qaeda. Yeah, you know, look, uh, to be honest with you, I would love to negotiate against our side, the American side, yeah. uh, going forward in any business arrangement because the Taliban fleeced them in Doha. And I, I, there's bridges I'd like to sell. There are used cars I'd like to sell. There are all sorts of ways you can make money and benefit from this because it's the sort of the level of servility and credulity embedded in this deal is really quite astonishing. It, it does speak to sort of a, a weakness on America's part now, unfortunately, going forward. But, you know, we, we're talking about yeah, the, it, the Taliban. Go go ahead, John. I'm sorry. No, it's all right. I was just going to say, you know, the the Taliban, you know, the, the, the way this all works, of course, is the U.S. and the Taliban, everybody else, and everybody else, other nations have been pleading with the Taliban for a, a ceasefire. Um, they gave the Taliban a ceasefire. The Taliban did, get, issued a ceasefire for three days recently. And there was a bunch of reporting about how they were, people were hoping this was going to extend to a prolonged ceasefire. You know, look, you and I want a prolonged ceasefire. It would be great. I mean, this this should have been something that um, the U.S. demanded all along. But, you know, instead, the State Department traded a concessions, including uh, a timetable for a full withdrawal and a hands-off Afghanistan policy in a deal that didn't even deliver a ceasefire. This gives you shows you how weak it is. And, Bill, the ceasefire didn't hold, right? The Taliban did this unilateral ceasefire for three days, which they've done before. I know you've documented this. And then they got back at it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. So here's what happened. The the Taliban issues a unilateral ceasefire. The Afghan government agrees to it. Um, Not agrees to it. They 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 say, yeah, we're on board with this. So it wasn't something worked out between the two. So it's technically, you know, unilateral is the best way to put it. The the Taliban agree uh, said it would stop fighting on its own for three days. So a couple, you know, then the Afghan government comes out and says, we're going to extend that ceasefire. The Taliban ignores it. There's attack in Pakistan. Paktia province today, 14 Afghan soldiers are killed. Uh, the Taliban takes credit for the attack. Spokesman Zabibullah Mujahideen tweets about it. Uh, there's no official statement on the website, but that's as official as you get. And now Paktia is one of the longstanding hotbeds of the economy. Yeah, that's one of their, exactly, one. exactly. And now Afghan officials are um, complaining that the Taliban is violating the ceasefire. But there is no ceasefire. So it just... You know, all sides of this want these this this deal, this ceasefire. They they're they're making it into what they want and not to the reality of what it is. I mean, it pains me to agree with the Taliban time after time when they say we're living up to our end of the deal um, and we're allowed to attack Afghan forces, et cetera, et cetera. But they're right. I mean, it, it, it was a great deal for the Taliban. And you know that when the Taliban continually goes back to cite it to justify its actions. You know, a couple of other quick things on this one. So there was reporting in The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal and elsewhere that the Pentagon has been drawing up these early withdrawal plans, you know, a quicker pace of withdrawal. You and I heard about that some months ago. There, the Pentagon's acting like this is sort of new and that the, and yeah. that this is because President Trump is bringing this up now. 
But we've heard this for months that President Trump wanted a quicker pace of withdrawal, which again undermines the whole premise of cutting this deal with the Taliban in the first place. If you're going to grant them all sorts of concessions, not deliver anything anywhere close to peace between the Taliban and Afghan government, let alone even, you know, the Taliban extracts all these concessions before they even sit down for one meeting with the Afghan government. Uh, you know, and certainly we don't even know if they're ever going to agree to meet in any kind of official capacity. They have all sorts of uh, you know, torturous language they use on this to, to work around that. But why bother cutting a deal with the Taliban if you're going to get out even earlier than your withdrawal deal says? You know, why bother even going through all this? You know, what, what's the what's the psychological urge to absolve the Taliban as and 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 basically portray it as our de facto counterterrorism partner? I, it's just totally bizarre to me. Um, but anyway, we've seen this reporting on these early withdrawal plans, and I wouldn't be surprised if we're less than 8,600 troops by Election Day. Would you, Bill? I wouldn't be surprised if we're down to several thousand by Election Day. Look, I, I think this is like the last administration, Obama administration. Afghanistan's moves are purely political and often um, uh, constrained to domestic politics, not international politics. So that's I. he is mercurial. He did something very similar in Syria. Um, and I could see this happen in Afghanistan. Look, he said it time and time again. At some point, I think he's going to do it. And, and yeah, I, now, nothing would shock me if this would happen before Election Day. You know, now, the interesting thing here is that you and I are not, look, I think some of President Trump's criticisms are actually valid. Right? I agree. I mean, yeah, I mean, he, I mean, you know, there's this, there's this reporting that he, um, he deferred to sort of the enlisted service members or sort of the lower ranks in the military. He would invite them in and talk to these, these uh, serving officers. Or, or I'm sorry, you know, the, basically the fighters, the service members, and basically went around the generals at times because he didn't trust the generals. I mean, you know, that was leveled as a criticism against him in the press because he sort of was snubbing the generals. But I mean, come on. I mean, the generals have not gotten this right for years. They haven't given a square sort of accounting of what's going on. He's, he, he's skeptical of what the U.S. military leadership has been telling him. I got to agree with that. Don't you, Bill? I mean, we've documented this for years. I mean, absolutely. He should be skeptical. Look, his instincts on when he's being lied to um, on and even on, you know, his criticisms about, you know, being there 19 years and not fighting for victory and acting as more of as a police force than a military I think he's spot on. It's his reaction well, to it. Is well, wait really- a minute. I, I would say the only thing on the police force thing, I, I object to the police force thing because that's not really what they're doing. I mean, this was this was basically, it's true the U.S. hasn't fought to win in some time, you know, perhaps ever even. You know, I mean, everything's been sort of conditional Afghanistan. It's part of the reason why this is all screwed up. But it isn't really a police force. I mean, it's just a, it's a modified sort of, you know, hoping to stand up the Afghan government so that they can continue to fight the insurgency. And the hope all, all along was, you know, the U.S. has had one foot out the door because we're hoping that the Afghan government would be competent enough to do this. And unfortunately, it doesn't look like they are and it uh, doesn't look like they will be long term. And, you know, we'll, we'll see what the fight looks like going, going ahead. But it's not true to me that it's a police action. I mean, you know, there's still the U.S. has prevented the Taliban from capturing provincial centers, you know. Uh, the U.S. special operations, uh, special forces and air, air power has been used to do that. And, you know, right, you know, a few days before President Trump was elected in 2016, for example, the U.S. killed Farouk al-Qahtani, a senior al-Qaeda leader who was planning uh, attacks against Americans around the world while supporting the Taliban insurgency. You know, to me, that's legitimate sort of counterterrorism actions that go beyond just police force. But, I mean, I guess the, there are parts of the critique or just sort of what he's hinting at that we've sort of been adrift in Afghanistan. I think that's but, legitimate. Look, and there's been, remember, there's been multiple phases to this war, right? Yeah, sure. You know, and, and, and so I'm referring back to the times where U.S. troops are sort of patrolling areas without Afghan forces and, and things of that nature. Yes, you're correct. Currently now it's more of an, it's, you know, more an advisatory and counterterrorism mission, although we haven't seen much counterterrorism lately. But yes, I mean, yeah, your point. Well, well the Taliban's got that, Bill. Bill, the Taliban's yes, got that force. We can Don't trust them. You know, President Trump says the Taliban's going to fight the terrorist force. He said that during one of his COVID, early COVID-19, um, you know, uh, press conferences. I'll be meeting personally with Taliban leaders in the not-too-distant future, and we'll be very much hoping that they will be doing what they say they're going to be doing. They will be killing terrorists. They will be killing some very bad people. They will keep that fight going. We've killed ISIS fighters by the thousands, and likewise in Afghanistan. But now it's time for somebody else to do that work, and that'll be the Taliban. And it could be surrounding countries. There are many countries 
that surround Afghanistan that can help. We're 8,000 miles away. I guess that's part of where you and I object, as we make clear on this podcast and in our writings, that's where we object to this. We understand the criticisms of the war effort, for sure. It's been a muddled mess for a long time. But just don't absolve the Taliban on the way out the door. And going back to President Trump's claim that we can just go back in, that may not be so easy for a lot of reasons. Um, You know, I mean, landlocked country, it's difficult to access. Pakistan, we've relied on for NATO supply lines for years, has, of course, been problematic this entire time. Uh, the Trump administration had a get tough on Pakistan policy in 2017. Whoops, abandoned that one. You know, as soon as uh, General McMaster was gone as national security advisor, all of a sudden we sort of snapped back to the sort of, you know, look the other way on what Pakistan's doing. And now you have Zalmay Khalilazad and U.S. military leadership going to Pakistan to kiss the Pakistani military's ass. Um, so basically, you know, this is all a mess. So we get that. But it's not going to be so easy to go back in if there's a counterterrorism threat that emerges that we need to take care of. Yeah, any type of punitive operation or counterterrorism raid. Look, we saw how well that worked out in the 90s, you know, launching uh, cruise missiles into empty tents. And, you know, where's the intelligence coming from? And there's a host of problems. Um, I don't expect Pakistan to be um, very willing to allow us to cross the borders. Iran certainly won't. And the, um, you know, look, the the former Russian republics to the north, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan and places like that, um, you know, you're you're beholden to the Russians uh, in order to get access to them. So, yeah, good luck with that is all I'd have to say. You know, you've, you've constrained yourself politically by having that horrible clause in the withdrawal deal. And then, you know, operationally, you're ha- you're going to have a difficult time getting any forces. You're going to have to violate someone's airspace in order to make it happen. You want to make it happen. You know, again, I, I know we just said this, but I got to just well, just to emphasize this again, it really is remarkable to me that this clause in the agreement has gotten so little press attention. Yeah. I haven't seen I haven't seen anybody write this up. And I'll, I'll read it for our listeners again because I just think you should understand that what this is this isn't just saying, okay, we're gonna get out of Afghanistan, forget it. You know, we we we're giving up after all this time and the, the war efforts muddled. Okay, understand that part. Um, don't understand the part where we're gonna say the US is gonna basically just have a hands-off policy going forward, given the horrible history here of terrorism emanating from Afghanistan. This idea that um, the, the clause reads, again, the United States and its allies will refrain from the threat or the use of force. So again, Bill, that's even just the threat. We can't even threaten force, right? Yeah. Against against the territorial integrity or political independence of Afghanistan or intervening in its domestic affairs. Now, if the U.S. abides by that, we can't even say once we detect, U.S. intelligence detects an al-Qaeda threat or an ISIS threat even, you know, who's to say this clause won't be thrown in the U.S.'s face, in America's face, and say, okay, you can't go after it because you said once you're out, you're out. Yeah, no, and you know, Tom, analyzing the deal like this makes you and I somehow warmongers. It's, um, you know, when yeah. we're we're probably For two of the biggest questions. Yeah. yeah, we're two of the biggest advocates. If we're not there to fight to win, let's leave. I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm pretty sure I could speak to you on that. For you on that, um, it's this is just very frustrating. You know, we're looking at this deal, and we're seeing the and reporting on the flaws of it, and the Taliban's position on it, and somehow that makes us. Um, the, the the bad guys in this picture, and I just it it always astounds me. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I I just think there's just profound intellectual confusion on all of this. Um, you know, you have the president of the United States and Secretary of State saying the Taliban is now our counterterrorism partner. Uh, that's that's the end. That's what a lost that's what a lost war yep. looks like, folks. Um, all right, so let's move on to ISIS because the U.S. You know, this is another war the U.S. has been tr- has tried to get out of a couple times now. It's trying to try to extricate itself from. Uh, but the U.S. is still hunting senior Al Qaeda, uh, sorry, senior ISIS leaders in Iraq, Syria, and elsewhere, and the, the U.S. partners are as well. And Bill, you wrote up this week at the Long War Journal um, this airstrike that uh, reportedly occurred in eastern Syria that called uh, killed Haji Tazir. Um, maybe talk a little bit about him and his background. He's somebody we tracked at Long War Journal. He, you know, there's some guys that we know about in leadership ranks and we, we report on other guys pop up. We don't know anything about, we know a little bit about him. Why don't you talk about yeah, him? Yeah, we know a little a bit. Of, he, he's, he's a known quantity. He was a leader within Al Qaeda in Iraq before the split between Al Qaeda and the Islamic state. Um, the U S last uh, August, he was one of three that were listed by the rewards for justice for program. Um, they up to a $5 million reward. Um, he was the, uh, in that designation, he was described as the deputy emir of manufacturing in Syria, 
And in that role, he uh, oversaw the research department for the Islamic State's chemical and biological weapons efforts in Syria. Um, the, the Iraqi Counterterrorism Service, which claimed to have passed the intelligence to um, uh, Operation Inherent Resolve, which is the coalition to defeat the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, they described him as a, a leader of the External Operations Network, which is the network that's used to conduct attacks outside of Iraq and Syria. Um, so his death hasn't been confirmed. That Iraq's counterterrorism service said he was killed uh, several days ago. The report came out, but the um, Operation Inherent Resolve and the, and the Islamic State have not commented on reports of his death. But, you know, look, this is an individual that, you know, we talk about the... Um, the longevity of the of these of these groups and and the and its leaders and fighters and commanders, uh, you know, this is a guy that's been in the game for over twenty years uh, now. Um, if it's true that he's taken out, he's an important individual to take out. Um, you know, the reward for justice program does not issue a five million dollar uh, reward for information leading to his capture and prosecution. Um, lightly so he certainly is is an individual that that was high on the list but um yeah we you know there, there's numerous guys like that like as you mentioned and we discussed on the uh, the drone episode and, and others you know there, there's guys we know and then there's guys we don't and uh he's one of the knowns and and it's a good kill if so but the odds are there's probably three guys ready to step in his shoes yeah, you know, and I, I was interested in the part where the U.S. government identifies him as um, overseeing the ISIS's chemical and biological weapons efforts in Syria. Now, to date, I think that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the ISIS chemical weapons efforts seem to be pretty crude, right? I mean, it's sort of like mustard gas or chlorine, uh, chlorine really type weapons, I think, that chlorine is modified. I haven't, you know, they've used sort of chlorine bombs going back to Al-Qaeda in Iraq days, um, there was some discussion even in the Bin Laden files and in correspondence back and forth with al-Qaeda senior leadership over the use of these weapons in Iraq because of public perceptions then. Um, I haven't seen any evidence that there's that they've advanced beyond sort of the, cr- the crudest forms of these weapons, but that doesn't mean that they, they haven't. I just haven't seen any evidence of it. Yeah, that's that's correct. I, we just haven't seen it. I mean, but I again, I never put anything past these groups. The fact that they're trying is... Uh, yep. obviously dangerous enough. I mean, look at how they've adapted technology like commercial, you know, uh, the drones, yeah. drones and things of that nature. Um, you know, the innovations with IEDs. So anytime, yes, you're correct. We haven't seen anything. And by the way, those chemical weapons attack, um, both, uh, myself and Bill Ardolino, we embedded with, um, us military groups, uh, us military, uh, uh, training teams and police training teams, in Fallujah area where, where some of these guys that we knew got hit with these attacks, these chemical weapon attacks, they would take chlorine uh, gas and the chlorine was usually used in water treatment and they detonate like a truck packed with the, with the chlorine in the middle of uh, civilians. Usually they went after the groups like the awakening. So this, and, and people were killed and, and, and maimed by this. It burns your lungs. Um, so fortunately, the U.S. Sold, none of the U.S. soldiers were uh, uh, severely impacted by this. But uh, yeah, this is something that we've directly seen, and it's something that can't be discounted. Yeah, and we, we've documented too, and the U.S. government has documented how um, some of the chemical weapons efforts on the chlorine side and other, other things were basically inherited from Saddam Hussein's regime. That some of the personnel within ISIS that were actually running these programs for ISIS came from Saddam Hussein's regime were doing that for Saddam back in the days. Um, it's one of those interesting areas where ISIS basically inherited part of the totalitarian infrastructure of Saddam's regime for its own purposes. Yeah, Tom, I'm going to share a real quick. This is a little bit off target here, but this is a story I've actually never. It's our uh, podcast, Bill. You can do yeah. whatever you want. You know. So you know, look, I, I was embedded in Mosul in 2000. In uh, it was April, I believe it was April 2008. And you talk about the chemical weapons program in Saddam, right? And everyone claims he didn't have it or whatnot. I'm at the, this base. It's uh, uh, it was uh, called Camp Assad, and the U.S. military was digging up uh, the ground to build a, a mess hall, a chow hall for the Iraqi military, which was expanding its presence at this base. And they hit a, they hit this white powder, massive containers of it. I get called off my embed by the commander of the um, the unit that I'm embedded with. 
he said, you know, says, hey, you got to check this out. I go, all right, let me, you know, so I go over and it's potassium cyanide, which is a, uh, a precursor to, I can't remember which gas, which uh, poison gas. Um, it just escapes me at the moment, but there's some, it, 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 but someone will know. It's probably a cyanide. Um, I'm going to go we'll keep talking. And so they want me to write this up. And I said, sure, let me talk to the and nuclear, chemical, biological uh, expert, the guys who dug this up. Let me interview the the um, the unit commander. Let me, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, no, we can't do that. Uh, and I'm sitting there going, well, wait, you want me to be like WMB D-boy for you, which at this time was a really hot topic. And yet I, um, I can't interview anyone about it. I just got to take pictures and show you what I saw. I was like, I'm not doing that. But like, you, you know, the these types of this type of infrastructure that Saddam set up was, you know, you had people from Saddam's regime joining Al Qaeda in Iraq. Some of them were just, you know, for various reasons. Some of them ideological, and they would help these groups um, to with this information. Here's a stash of this, and so yeah, we know that this stuff is out there. We know that Saddam had a chemical weapons program, even though it's it's denied all over the place. And then even the, even on the CIA website, by the way, they note uh, how uh, chemical uh, shells with chemical gas were detonated by jihadist groups, supposedly unknowing unknowingly. But I'm not so certain about that. Um, but yeah, it, it's this is this is something when you have a regime like the like Saddam Hussein who, you know, was building a chemical weapons program and then you don't properly secure the country and then you have a, a jihadist resistance pop up, you shouldn't be surprised that they're going to try and build a chemical weapons program. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, too, I mean, we look at Iraq, you're talking about ISIS in Iraq and Syria, and one of the things we continue to sort of, you know, I feel like I'm lagging in reporting on this because there's so much going on, but there's just so many different areas to report on. Um, but, you know, look, there are a lot of indications recently that ISIS is... There's an uptick in its operations in Iraq in particular, um, that the insurgency is bubbling there. And there's always this conversation about, you know, well, it's a resurgence in ISIS, so they're growing again. And you and I, I we kind of refrain a little bit from that that verbiage because, as we've explained before, there's an ebb and flow of this stuff. These exactly. these, orga- these organizations are, are, are their insurgents, their insurgents principle, uh, principally, first and foremost— so as organized as insurgencies, there's a certain amount of capacity that's built in that that's, people have a very hard time measuring. Uh, you know, we have a hard time measuring exactly how much capacity they have. But when we see an uptick in attacks, you know, people say, well, they're resurging again. Well, they could just be using, um, utilizing unused capacity that they had that for whatever reason they decided not to use. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's alarming. And the operational data is important to keep track of. It tells you overall what they're doing. But, Bill, you know, I was looking at, uh, the weekly newsletter Al Naba that ISIS puts out, and I looked at the uh, issue two thirty five. This is their Arabic newsletter where they do a summary of different reports. They rail against the West. They summarize their operations. They swipe out Al Qaeda. And so two thirty five issue two thirty five was for the week of May fourteenth to the twentieth. And I thought it was interesting to look at. I do this periodically. Look at their claims, which you have to take it with a grain of salt, of course. But they always put out this infographic called "The Harvest of Soldiers: um, Outcomes of Islamic State Soldier Attacks for the Week," basically. And this was for May fourteenth uh, to twentieth. And of course, Al Qaeda has, has emulated this as well, and so has the Taliban. But the ISIS numbers are, are alarming um, when you look at them. I mean, you, during this one week from May fourteenth to twentieth, they claimed one hundred fifty-eight operations total. Most of these were in Iraq. They had 84 in Iraq, then followed by 39 in Syria. There were 13 in West Africa, um, then nine in the Sinai, four in Central Africa, which at some point here we're going to have to deal with what's going on in Central Africa, Um, three in Libya, two in the Khorasan, which is, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, surrounding area, Uh, two in Somalia, one in Yemen, and one basically in East Asia or the Philippines. So again, the center of gravity for this organization based on their claimed operations is still in Iraq and Syria, mainly Iraq. And when you look at what they're also claiming, they've, they, it's the same old areas you, you were reporting on years ago when you were embedded, uh, Bill, same areas. I mean, you get Diyala, uh, Kirkuk, northern Baghdad, south of Baghdad, Anbar, Saladin, you know, um, same areas again as, oh, after all these years. And this speaks to, I think, what we keep talking about with the resilience of these organizations and also that there's this latent capacity that's very tough to to measure yeah absolutely i i i I always bristle when i see resurgence like how many times does a group have to resurge um before you just realize that it maybe 
as you, look, we've we've always said ebb and flow. It's the best way to put it. The problem is, is what we have is leadership that is always willing to say a group's defeated or on the brink of defeat. So once you use that language, then they come back, supposedly come back or resurge. That's how you that's how you get this sort of dynamic where we look where people get shocked that the Islamic State is suddenly back. What we always argue is it it's it hasn't gone away. It hasn't been defeated. I mean, look, President, how many times did President Trump declare the Islamic State defeated? He said it in two, April 2018, and then he said it again in, I believe it was December of 2019, where he said they were fully defeated. But we're not looking at a, at a defeated uh, group. You know, I'm looking at the, at the attack data that you, you provided on this, and you're right. This is the same tempo that the group has had over, I mean, assuming that it's true. During the, 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 the length of the Iraqi insurgency. I mean, you know, yes, sometimes the attacks were more in Anbar and more in Baghdad or more. But like you said, same areas, same places. Um, that's not a, the evidence of a resurgent group. It's a group, evidence of a group that maintains a persistent presence in these areas and that is able to turn it on and turn it off or sometimes maybe forced to turn it off at times but it doesn't mean it's dead it doesn't mean they're resurging it it means they have a, a persistent presence and you know what's going to be maddening is in the future when al-qaeda decides to start advertising its presence in, in afghanistan again we're going to see all these reports yep. saying al-qaeda is back in afghanistan and you and i are going to be left saying they're saying no they never left you know you yes. people just haven't been paying attention you know Tom, I actually think I wrote an article uh, probably about eight years ago using that same same language. You know, Al Qaeda it never left. I'd have to take a look at that. You know, it, it's it's maddening. It's really this is the result of people just not paying attention um, in these areas. And also, you know, a big problem that we have uh, that I think we experience is. You know, a lot of times uh, some reporters are just regurgitating what political or defense officials or intelligence officials are telling them, and they're not using their knowledge of the region um, to, or, or, the, or the, the topic area to actually say, you know, does that really make sense? So you see all these reports unquestionably stating, this is how I, and look, I get it. There are good reporters and good reports out there, say, on the Taliban peace deal. But, you know, there's withdraw also a deal withdraw deal. Yeah, you're right. I got I fall in that trap every time. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's, you know, calling it a peace deal, for instance. Right. That's because that's what what's what Calizade says. That's what what uh, President Trump says. That's what Secretary Pompeo says. But it's not that uh, or claiming that the the you know, so this is the type of thing that we're dealing with all the time. It's very frustrating. And I you know, but yep, it's something we have to live with. Yeah, you know, by the way, on the deal, I pointed this out to a reporter the other day that the, the title of the, here we are back to Afghanistan again. Sorry, folks. Yeah, we can't, but we the, can't, the, can't get away. The withdrawal deal um, is actually titled Agreement for Bringing Peace to Afghanistan between the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which is not recognized by the United States as a state and is known as the Taliban. And the United States of America. I mean, this is the type of tortuous language that's used in this thing where they, you know, the Taliban insists on referring to itself as Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, a totalitarian regime. And the U.S. has put in this bizarre disclaimer time and time again saying it's not recognized as such, doesn't recognize it as a legitimate political entity. But it's agreement for bringing peace to Afghanistan. And that's sort of a, a you know, the title, again, that doesn't say it's a peace deal. It says that this is the framework that they, they're claiming is going to bring peace to Afghanistan. And are the Taliban's logic yeah it's going to bring peace to afghanistan because they they've they envision their victory with yeah. the us leaving and western forces leaving and they're going to they're going to bring peace to afghanistan because they're going to rule that's their whole idea you know yeah I, as well, uh, you know we've noted the peace of the taliban won't be very peaceful to the taliban what peace is is the us leaves it runs roughshod over uh, the afghan forces and then the taliban will enforce their peace that's not the that's not the peace that the us wants or should want, and it's not the piece that people think it'll be. Um, well, all yeah, those apologists that, that pimp for this thing, um, you know, they should be forced to live in, in um, areas under in Taliban Kabul, control. yeah, they should have in the new, yeah, whenever, whatever the new emirate looks like. Um, but, you know, it, it's true. This is what I, I find also 
discomforting about all this is the idea that just throwing the word peace out there somehow is used to claim the moral high ground, right? Yeah. You right. know, oh, well, I'm, I'm working for peace, so therefore I'm, I'm a morally superior actor. Well, no. You know, if, if, you're, if your work is just delivering a Taliban victory or is enshrining the Taliban as a legitimate entity, regardless of what you claim, or is empowering the Taliban, or is um, without any evidence um, claiming that the Taliban is now our de facto counterterrorism partner, how is that peace, right? That's not peace, you know. That's that's uh, something quite quite different. Um, so, I, I I I think part of what happens in the press reporting is this credulity because once you throw the word peace out there, everybody loves it and wants to hear that. And believe me, we we love peace and real peace in Afghanistan too. But just just using the word peace doesn't mean you're actually serving any noble or moral cause. Sorry, you know, uh, you could actually be you could actually use that as a misnomer to mislabel what you're actually doing. Yep. Um, uh, but in any event, so. You know, we're, we talked, but we got on another digression about Afghanistan. But, you know, back to ISIS for a second. So they claimed only two operations in the Khorasan, um, which is an area where they still counter and are going after or trying to, to, to fight the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And there's a new speech out by the ISIS spokesman, Abu Hamza al-Qureshi. And his, this is the third now spokesman for ISIS as a caliphate. So you had Abu Muhammad al-Adani, who was killed in summer 2016. He was the first spokesman for ISIS as a caliphate. I mean, he's been there a long time. Um, you know, there's guys who, uh, you know, served before him and within the predecessor organizations, but he was this longstanding spokesman for the group. Um, then you had Abu Hassan al-Muhajir, who served from 2016 to October 2019. He was killed right after Baghdadi was killed. He was the sort of second spokesman for ISIS as a caliphate or as the declared caliphate, self-declared caliphate. Um, and he, he issued a few speeches. Now you have Abu Hamza al-Qureshi. And his nom de guerre is meant to imply that he sort of descended from the same tribe as the Prophet Muhammad, which, of course, none of us can actually figure out. That's a whole labyrinthian uh, you know, uh, genealogy. You'd have to go through there to validate that. But that's the claim that both he and the new emir of the ISIS are de- descended from this, this tribe. It's supposed to basically give them religious and political currency and legitimacy. Um, and his new speech by Abu Hamza is titled, And the Disbelievers Will Know Who Gets the Good End. So this is sort of rubbing it in the faces of the the so-called disbelievers of the infidel. And Bill, I I listen to this thing, and there's just a lot of chatter on the coronavirus. He goes on and on and on, claiming it's divine retribution against the West, of course, Um, which is, again, we've talked about previous episodes, how these guys just sort of portray any event that happens as as Allah's will, whether or not it's logically consistent or not. I'm sure that there are plenty of jihadis who are infected with coronavirus right now, for example. But he also goes off on the Taliban deal with the U.S. and Doha, the same thing we've just criticized. And he accuses the Taliban and, and by extension, al-Qaeda of conspiring with the U.S. to fight ISIS. Now, what's interesting about this is that this is, in effect, what General Scotty Miller and Secretary Pompeo and Special Representative Zalmay Khalilzad have pitched to the American public and to the Taliban. You know, they've implicitly devalued the al-Qaeda threat in Afghanistan and its alliance with the Taliban in the name of fighting ISIS. In fact, there's press reporting in the New York Times that General Miller at one point said— to the Taliban in Doha, you know, let's stop fighting each other so we can take the fight to ISIS directly. This is, again, evidence of a lost war. Um, and here you have ISIS, you know, going after, and, and so there's a note of truth to this, even though the Taliban would deny it. There's a note of truth to this that basically that's the sort of the um, assumption underlying the this this withdrawal agreement that was signed. Right, Bill? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, what's, what's also funny about this is, so the Taliban accuses the United States and the Afghan yep. government of creating and supporting the Islamic State Khorasan province. And there were so. allegations of flying in, flying in uh, <laughs> fighters and, and supplies and arms and stuff at one point in Nangarhar. I mean, the Taliban, Taliban goes off on that. I mean, there's some, some weird stuff behind the scenes, right, where we think that, you know, the, the U.S. has at least stood down and allowed the Taliban to go fight. Um, ISIS in eastern Afghanistan at times. The U.S. military document was trying to take credit for the Taliban delivering decisive blows against ISIS in northern Afghanistan at one point in time, um, or, or right? Man, there was yeah. sort of some evidence along those lines. I mean, it, it Jawzdan province, yeah. The Islamic State went, or I'm sorry, the Taliban goes into Jawzdan province in this one district that the Islamic State controlled, and it was enforcing its brand of harshery or Islamic law. The Taliban mustered, the Afghan government was powerless to do anything about it. And then the Taliban finally musters thousands of troops, crushes the Islamic State, and then the Afghan government evacuates about 200 uh, Islamic State fighters, and, and then the U.S. military calls it a counterterrorism success. That's how yeah, it works and, there. Yeah, and just to reiterate why we find this so uh, noxious, 
is that you know the U.S. went into Afghanistan because of this alliance between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. The Taliban refused, Omar refused to give up uh, Osama bin Laden. Yeah, you had some uh, Taliban officials in the foreign ministry who claimed that you know they were willing to try bin Laden or something like that, but their claims were all nonsense. I mean, quite frankly, folks, they're bullshit. Uh, Mullah Omar was very clear in saying, you know, we're not turning him over, and this is a matter of Islam's prestige, and you know, basically the U.S. can go pound sand. But Mullah Omar said that before 9/11. He said it after 9/11. Um, you know, he clearly was standing by his man, and this is something that the Taliban is on occasion celebrating this alliance. So the, the U.S. went in to Afghanistan to neutralize an Al Qaeda threat and sort of disrupt this Taliban Al Qaeda alliance. And now, basically, the U.S. is turning to the Taliban Al Qaeda alliance, pretending the Taliban isn't deeply in bed with Al Qaeda. And at the same time, appealing to the Taliban to be our counterterrorism partner. This is a completely distasteful turn of events here in this war, and it's certainly not uh, doesn't speak to uh, wanting to support this war effort when we become this sort of twisted intellectually on what's going on. Yeah, it's it's indicative. This is how you know you lost when you have to grovel to the Taliban that is allied with the terrorist group that attacked you on nine eleven. To and and you have to you grovel to them to take the fight to the Islamic State, which the Taliban's going to do anyway because it hates the Islamic State. It hates the Islamic State for... Yeah, the Islamic State just, challenges... It's Islamic monopoly. State, yeah. Yeah, the Islamic State declares itself as the caliphate and the Taliban's Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan in the ISIS scheme is invalid because um, for ISIS, they're the caliphate. The, Islamic, the Taliban is not part of the caliphate. They're caliphate. You know, it's sort of a part of a rival would-be or imagined caliphate. And so, therefore, as long as the Taliban and its emir don't um, genuflect to ISIS's um, supposed caliph, then this is sort of invalid and, and religiously illegitimate. That's sort of why they're coming from. Now, there is a there is another problem with this claim that we're going to have the Taliban fight ISIS and al-Qaeda for us when there's no evidence that they're fighting al-Qaeda, of course. Um, but... The part of the problem is that a lot of the, the ISIS commanders are former Taliban commanders, right? In Afghanistan and Pakistan. So you have a lot of guys who basically defected because they were upset with the chain of command. They want power for themselves or sort of local incentives, whatever it may be. Um, but, you know, basically shows that a lot of these ISIS commanders are not really all that different from their Taliban, their former Taliban brethren, because they were formerly part of the Taliban, either the Afghan Taliban or the Pakistani Taliban. Yeah, that's correct. And and you know, at times, I think what we what we see is there might be cooperation there between the two, or there might be the turning of heads when one operates in the other's area. So you know, who's to say that you know there couldn't be some type of rapprochement? I think it's unlikely given the animosity between the groups. But I do find it strange that the Islamic State is is able to persist for so long in Afghanistan, um, given the Taliban's uh, natural strengths. It's uh, um, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a, a much larger, better organized, better supported, better funded, better trained group than the, than the Islamic State. And yet the Islamic State persists. Yeah, I mean, I think that the Taliban, one way to look at it right now in Afghanistan, the Taliban, its al-Qaeda allies are the more robust insurgency. Uh, they run a more robust insurgency, whereas right now ISIS is functioning much more like a terrorist organization. Exactly. And if you if you had a sort of a sliding scale, um, sort of trending upward, you know, a terrorist organization is a lesser entity than an insurgency organization. This is part of what's become confused in the American rhetoric too, and understanding of this. If you're a full blown insurgency that's challenging government authority throughout a country, that's a far greater threat than a terrorist organization that can go into a, a hospital in Kabul and shoot up a bunch of newborns and mothers. Right? I mean, as hideous as that latter uh, operation is, it's a pretty easy to execute. I mean, you know, newborns and their mothers aren't going to have a lot of security, but if you're threatening to overthrow a state and take control of the state, uh, throughout the country, that's a much bigger endeavor, a uh, much bigger effort and requires a lot more resources. Um, so that's the, the scale between them. But you could see in this, this speech by Abu Hamza al-Qureshi that he, they're, they're, ISIS is going to continue to attack the Taliban Al-Qaeda alliance um, ideologically um, using their rhetoric to go after them. They've done this in Al-Naba. They've done this now in this speech, you know, pressing the claim to go after them. And I think the Taliban is a little bit sensitive to the um, ideological charge against this because you, you, I think you watched The Real Men 4, right? The new Taliban yes. production that yes. came out, right? Which is yes. they're celebrating Jalal and Akani and, the, and, and then also these political figures within um, the Taliban's political office in Doha. And a lot of the scenes that I saw, or some of the scenes I saw, were Taliban fighters basically saying, I trust 
you know, the, the Taliban political leadership, you know, they're leading us to victory and I trust what they're doing, what they're saying. And you could say, you know, why did they put that video out? Well, it may be that they're sensitive to criticism within jihadi circles as they negotiated with the U.S., right? Even though you and I know that's a sophisticated play because the U.S. bent over backwards to sort of get any kind of deal and is now going to give the Taliban what they want and get almost nothing or nothing in return. Um, makes sense for the Taliban to do that because they're going to win or they, they think they're going to win. Um, but, you know, there's criticism within jihadi circles that says, you know, maybe we sh- maybe they shouldn't uh, have negotiated with the U.S. in the first place. And the video, I think, was a little bit defensive in that regard. I, don't yeah, I, I, I concur. I, I actually agree. But, you know, I think this is one of the inherent weaknesses of the Islamic State. It's inability to take to the political stage to achieve any of its goals. It just refuses um, the, look, the, I always say like the, you know, Al, the Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State or the extremist extremists, there is just no um, will whatsoever for them to, to conduct any types of negotiations. The Taliban's negotiations with the United States, while it may look, you know, as a sign of weakness to a hardcore jihadist, and that's really going, you know, or should I say a hardcore, hardcore jihadist from the Islamic State. I think most of them understand the the strength of the Taliban's um, political efforts. If Look, the, the ultimate goal is to get the United States to leave Afghanistan and the Taliban's ultimate goal and, and reestablishes Islamic Emirate. If they can get to do, if they could do that um, by driving them out via force, they're going to do that. If they can do it, with getting them to the negotiating table, they're going to do that. Um, they did a little of both in this one. They tired the U.S. out with fighting and then took them to the table. They're going to achieve their goal, and that's something that the Islamic State is not going to be able to do in any of its theaters. Um, so, you know, look, that's why we, I think both you and I, I think I would, I probably could speak to, for you here, where that's why we view the al-Qaeda sphere, the Taliban al-Qaeda sphere of influence far more dangerous because they're more adept at manipulating propaganda and and using you know political um or you know negotiations and things of that nature not that al-qaeda would ever sit down and negotiate but it's wholly supportive of the taliban's efforts to negotiate well actually even the al-qaeda even said in north in north africa that it would be willing to sit down to to get a friend to withdraw so you know i think you know this is part of that dynamic that exists and that's why i think that ultimately it's easy the islamic state is a lightning rod because they'll kill babies in hospitals and they'll never negotiate well we think we think they did that operation we think right Yeah. yeah We don't really actually even know. But yeah, yeah no, I mean, Al-Qaeda, I mean, I wrote up Al-Qaeda in West Africa offered, you know, if the French yep. withdraw, then they'll negotiate with the Malian government. Well, I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, if you're going to, if the West is going to leave, which is the number one thing impeding their ability to create their Islamic Emirates, then yeah, of course they negotiate with the the, the the local entities to a certain extent, or they're willing to bargain because they're going to get what they want politically, which is an Islamic Emirate in these areas. And that's part of the problem that we have with the Taliban talks is no matter what the State Department says about um, they don't recognize Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan as a legitimate entity. This whole process is legitimized in the power of the Taliban as a legitimate entity. And you go back to prior to 9-11, the Taliban was recognized as a legitimate regime or a legitimate state by only a handful of countries at times. You know, you had Pakistan, Saudi Arabia originally were, were willing to sort of play ball there, um, although that changed with Saudi Arabia over time. Um, but, you know, it did not have any international legitimacy. Now you watch the Taliban political figures after all these years going to Moscow, going to Iran, going here, going there, you know, going, you know, obviously with their office in Doha. And then you have the Secretary of State of the United States, the first cabinet level official to actually fly halfway around the world to Doha to personally meet with Taliban political figures. Sorry, folks, that's legitimizing their Islamic Emirate as a political entity. And so now this is this is the perversity of this war is that this entity that was not recognized as legitimate uh, um, before 9-11 could very well be on the verge of international legitimacy now. And that's why al-Qaeda is endorsing this and sees this as a path forward to political power, because they see that this legitimacy that this process is granting, that they want to emulate in West Africa and elsewhere, is the way to have Islamic Emirates be legitimized by by these this international system they're trying to basically undermine and undo from within. So it basically can take the pressure off them. And that, that's a big problem, I think. Yeah, and look, the Taliban itself, I believe they issued a statement about a week ago noting that, um, you know, it's political victories and being recognized. Look, American allies didn't get the treatment that the Taliban did. Um, they would, some, some American allies or want, wannabe allies would die for the Secretary of State to come over. And, you know, you had them talking to low-level essentially low-level Taliban figures 
um, a political representative in, in Doha. You're getting the Secretary of State's attention. That's absurd. Yeah, a guy, a guy That's was what legitimacy looks like. A guy who was in prison in Pakistan for for several years, yeah, you know. Exactly. I mean, that's that's you know, and then we we have the Secretary of State flying over, desperate to shake hands, you know. Or five Taliban leaders who were imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay, right? And and all of them, as I reported, their dossiers, all of them were littered with Al Qaeda ties, you know. Yeah. And now we're now we're pretending that they're they're kosher. Um, but you know, this this speech by Abu Hamza Al Qureshi, he, he not only does he go after the Taliban Al Qaeda and the, the Taliban deal with the with the U.S. He also repeats the, the, the ISIS criticism of al-Qaeda in West Africa, claiming that al-Qaeda started the fight, and that al-Qaeda is preventing jihadists from joining the caliphate, the so-called caliphate in West Africa. So he's really, you know, they're really ratcheting up the rhetoric again against al-Qaeda, and it, it shows again, I think it's a strong piece of evidence that there isn't some grand bargain between the two coming, that they're, they're still willing to go after them. Uh, ISIS is still willing to go after um al-Qaeda in this fashion. Right? And I think that's you and I look at that and we think that there could be sort of tactical cooperation. There reportedly was tactical cooperation in West Africa between the two rivals. There could be elsewhere at other times. But um, in terms of a grand bargain right now, it doesn't. That certainly that possibility doesn't look very strong. No, it doesn't. Look, there was a time where I thought, hey, maybe if Baghdadi was killed and, and Adnani, the spokesman, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, of course, the the uh, the first leader of the Islamic State, and Adnani, the spokesman, I, they, these were two guys who were really virulently al- anti-Al-Qaeda. And I thought, well, maybe if they're killed at some point in time, there could be some type of reproachment. I don't look nothing surprise would surprise me, but I think those days have long passed. The animosity between the two groups is great, at least at the senior leadership level. And you got to understand that not you, Tom, but our, our listeners here. Um, the when we look at this tactical cooperation on the ground, these as local Islamic state leaders you, used to be members of Al Qaeda or you know or some type of or some other allied group. They would. These are people that they worked together and fought alongside each other. Now they're forced to to fight each other. So I think that's where you see some of this tactical, this local cooperation. If they had a preference, they probably would wouldn't be fighting each other. But uh, but the lead, there's leadership pressures, and also there's just differences in 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 opinion and differences in ideology that have occurred. And I think that's that's where you'll you know ultimately you start seeing the separation between the two. But we shouldn't be surprised when. If Taliban leaders are working with local Islamic State leaders or uh, Islamic State West Africa leaders are working with JNIM um, leaders, which is Al Qaeda's local branch in in West Africa, uh, because they used to be partners, they used to fight alongside each other. So we should ex- we should expect some type of cooperation or or tolerance um, at the local level. Yeah, you know and. The other thing is, we've said before, we're going to come back to this, we'll do a longer episode just on the ISIS-Al-Qaeda rivalry, sort of, uh, I think, setting the record straight on some of that. Um, I did a long chapter on this topic for the book that I uh, co-wrote with David Gartenstein-Ross, who was kind enough to be our first guest on the, the epi- uh, this podcast. Um, I did a, a big deep dive on it, and we can exp- we can uh, sort of pilfer that a little bit for our episode, explaining where all the differences are in the different theaters and how this all evolved. It's an interesting story, I think, and there's there's some details there that I think are very important uh, that are also sometimes misreported. But I think we'll, we could turn to one other uh, ISIS leader who the U.S. is now hunting, um, and they've identified publicly. And whereas we know uh, something about the earlier figures we discussed. This is a guy who popped up, and I didn't—I hadn't seen his name before, hadn't seen his role before. This is a guy the U.S. just offered a reward of up to three million dollars for information on Muhammad Qadir Musa Ramadan, otherwise known as Abu Bakr Al Garab. Uh, this is another guy we knew very little about until the U.S. publicly identified him. Bill, I don't—you heard of this no, guy? I hadn't he, heard of this guy. He was a ghost, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, he was. He was uh, according to the U.S. He was born in Jordan, which is interesting given the whole history of Jordanians within the ISIS leadership and its predecessor organizations, including going back to Zarqawi's days. Um, the U.S. describes him as one of the ISIS's longest-serving senior media officials and oversees the group's daily media operations, including the management of content from ISIS's dispersed global network of supporters. Now, 
that language, what I think that actually means is he's overseeing the Al Qaeda, so I'm sorry, the ISIS so-called provinces that are reporting back to the central media hub and producing daily content. And one of the things we've been monitoring and continue to monitor is that Amok News, which is the, with the ISIS's principal daily reporting mechanism, and then they have Al Nava, which we discussed, and then they have um, central uh, media hubs like the one that produced Abu Hamza Al Qureshi's uh, message. But there's a lot of daily reporting going through Omak and, and, and Al-Naba, weekly reporting through Al-Naba, that's accumulated from the ISIS provinces. And there's definitely a reporting mechanism there. And it, it seems to me like what the U.S. State Department is talking about here with this reward offer is that this guy uh, is actually overseeing the collection and sort of synthesis of that, that that's probably what, what he's doing. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Tom. That That is a, a, a very key point. And it just goes to show that the group, at least its media operations, still is co- out connected to the outside world. I mean, it's look, you we talked about the stats that were, you know, in the, the about attacks inside of Iraq and in, in Syria. And they, those numbers are being comp- compiled by someone. They're being put together. They're being gathered. And then they're being put into official propaganda and disseminated. And it sounds to me, and I, I concur with your analysis on this, that he is, that that uh, Abu Ghraib is a key leader in this. Um, and I also thought it was very interesting And when they, they talked about his um, – his how he again he's the extremist extremist i'm going to read what what state said here it said it underscoring his violent extremism he led an effort to cleanse isis of moderate opinions imprisoning members of isis's propaganda teams who did not meet his extreme interpretation of islam so a, a figure like this who's gathering all the information from the provinces he's also serving as the, the basically the the thought police for the Islamic State's propaganda. And this, this makes him a very key figure, if he, particularly if he has the capacity, has the ability to get people imprisoned um, on the media teams. I mean, th- this guy sounds like a real nasty individual. It's always a, a perverse pleasure when we learn about the existence of one of these guys. Yeah, you know, I read that same language in the reward offer, and I wondered what role he's played in this controversy within ISIS. You know, they have this delegated committee, which is the you know, this uh, very important advisory body and uh, policy body that uh, supposedly sits underneath the overall emir of the faithful for ISIS and advises them and carries out his policies. Um, this delegate committee got into a, a big problem here where basically at one point they were issuing fatwas that were, even within the ISIS world, were ultra, ultra radical. So this was sort of not just the radicals or the ultra radicals, but it's even a step beyond that, where basically you had members within ISIS who were reportedly even accusing Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi of being an infidel because he he wasn't declaring all other Muslims to be infidel who didn't follow their ways, you know, as infidels. Um, so it became this chain kufr, it basically became known as. And I was wondering if he was involved in this kerfuffle here over the delegate committee or what role he plays, because this sounds like he's still serving in that in that capacity as a, as a senior guy in the media operation. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what role he played in the, all this infighting that occurred within ISIS. I mean, it was one of those stories where, you know, again, it seems it got to seem bizarre to an American or to anybody living in a Western country with sort of, um, you know, our sort of more liberal values. But the idea that you have an ultra, ultra radical wing of the ISIS is just has always been uh, at the same time alarming, but also kind of funny. Yeah, it, it, it. I mean, I'm sitting here smiling and suppressing a chuckle as we're talking about this. And, you know, this is what I was talking about earlier when I was saying the extremist extremist. He's one of these guys and he's very likely one of these guys who hates the fact that Islamic State West Africa can cooperate with Al Qaeda's local branch there at a tactical level. I'm sure he's, you know, he's part of what I was discussing earlier, you know, the pressures for these guys not to do this. He, he does not want he's type of individual that doesn't want to see cooperation. They, they view their worldview as so narrow and so extreme. And if you're not following it to the letter, there's, you know, you're, you're committing a sin against the law. That's how they look at it. I mean, these kind of individuals are, are, you know, from the perspective, our perspective, they're great for the Islamic state because they're, they're the type of individuals that tear these groups apart by, you know, again, calling Abur Bakr al-Baghdadi an extremist and a, a takfir, declaring takfir against him. That's just incredible. And um, yeah, the, the ch- more the of them, takfir, please. The chain takfir was always fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you know, this is the idea that if, um, you know, basically if, if you, 
you could be declared an infidel if you don't declare um, certain Muslims to be infidels. Right. So just by by virtue of you not expressing your ultra radical ideology or agreeing with this sort of um, takfir status of other Muslims, you you yourself become an infidel. I mean, it's really crazy. I mean, but you know, listen. I mean, there's a certain amount of irrationality built into all this, you know, with this this belief system, but. Um, yeah, I, the more that this could create problems for them, the better. Um, I don't know. I don't know what the current status of all no. that is, to be frank. It sort of bubbled up a couple years ago, and it sort of has been quiet since then. But that language in this reward offer for this guy seemed seemed to imply that maybe he's been involved in all that stuff. And we're going to keep an eye on that for a look, to look out for some more. I think we can leave it there for this week. What do you think, Bill? I think that's a yep. good roundup of the news. Thank you, listeners, for uh, tuning in again to this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your shows. And we'll see you again next week.